This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. My name is Grace Fowler, and today we will be talking about the movie Shutter Island. You haven't taken any pills, have you? I've seen any walking nightmares lately, Marshall. This movie is directed by Martin Scorsese and stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark Ruffalo, as well as several other actors. Um, And it takes place on Shutter Island, which is a island off the coast of Boston, I believe, which hosts an asylum for the quote-unquote criminally insane. Now, before I go any farther into this episode, I am going to just throw up a real quick spoiler alert. Uh, I know this movie came out in like 2011, 2010, but I'm still going to give you a chance now to turn around (laughs) and watch the movie if you haven't seen it yet, because there are some plot lines that you would not want to have spoiled for you if you've never seen it before. Um, So that's this is your fair warning (laughs) to to chill before you listen to this episode. Uh, I'm also going to, you know, just briefly give a content warning that I will be talking about some concepts like child abuse, violence, um, and a form of suicidality, more of like a latent suicidality, but uh, suicidality will be mentioned. Um, So if those topics are not something you're interested in hearing about, this may be an episode to skip uh, or just be prepared for when those things come up later in the episode. Um, Okay, so Shutter Island... If you have seen it, you are aware of the plot. We follow a U.S. Marshal named Teddy Daniels, his partner Chuck, and they are going to this asylum to investigate the mysterious disappearance of one of the patients named Rachel Solando. Uh, Teddy and his partner get to the island right as a big storm is hitting, so they essentially become trapped. And after a series of escalating odd (laughs) experiences... We realize that Teddy Daniels is actually a patient of the asylum. His name is Andrew Latis, and he has been there for two years, unable to come to terms with the reasons why he has been incarcerated at this asylum. Um, So we're going to get into all of that stuff later on, but this is just kind of like a quick refresher if it's been a while since you've seen it. And I will be honest, I did just recently finish, I just finished watching it because I wanted to refresh myself. I remembered the big point, which was like that Teddy is actually the patient. Um, But I, you know, didn't remember a lot of the other stuff. And I think it was a really good movie to rewatch before talking about it. Um, And I did really. um, I did enjoy watching it, even though I knew what the twist was. So getting to rewatch it and seeing it from the perspective of knowing that Teddy is one of these patients and seeing how some of the odd behaviors or statements said to him make sense when you know that it's because he's a patient interacting with staff and other patients. So I thought that was um, a pretty good reason to rewatch it. It's just interesting to watch it in that context. Um, And one thing I do want to say up top before I continue is that I will be using the term patient um, and not prisoner. This is touched on very lightly in the film 
there's like some conversation around the language used to describe the people who are in the asylum. And the rea- reality is, is that everyone who is at Shutter Island f- as, you know, a patient is there because they have committed some sort of crime and are essentially incarcerated, but they are incarcerated and have a pretty severe mental illness at the same time. So it would be kind of the equivalent of the state hospitals that we have today where those found not guilty by reason of insanity or those waiting to be found competent to stand trial would be held. Now, it is, I guess, technically true to refer to them as prisoners because they are incarcerated. Um, But I agree with one of the psychiatrists in the film that the phrase patient is better because mental health is there to treat them in the capacity as if they're a patient and not there to like do anything about their crimes. Um, Yeah. Like um, if you're a mental health person who works in a correctional institution, like you're not there to be their prison guards. You're not there to be their lawyer. You're there to give them mental health treatment. So they're patients regardless of like the way in which they came to be your patient. So that's what I'll be saying throughout um, this episode. And it's what I say in my day-to-day work as well. Okay. So I've got a couple of main issues or areas that I want to talk about. And I have some really interesting articles that I will be using for this episode as well, which will be posted on the sources page. I really recommend you checking them out if any of them seems interesting to you, especially my psychodynamic friends out there. Um, There's some really good stuff about Fairburn and um, Klein, the paranoid schizoid position, um, which we will not be getting into today because it's not really good for the community. Um, Okay, so the first theme that I want to talk about is the role that violence plays in this film. So one of the articles that I read, which is by Myers, and it is called Scapegoats and Redemption on Shutter Island in the Journal of Religion and Film, published in 2012. Um, This article was looking at essentially like the role that violence plays in the movie. And where does the violence come from? Like, are some of the characters inherently violent people or are they good people who sometimes engage in violence and a lot of that discourse is going to center around teddy our main character or teddy or andrew um he does a lot of very violent things in the film in the, his past and in the like present days we follow him around he was a soldier in world war ii and killed uh prison guards at a concentration camp he killed his wife which is the reason he's at the asylum and then throughout the film we see him lash out very quickly and he beats a fellow patient very badly during one of the later scenes of the movie and we find out from the psychiatrist that Teddy has a pretty intense history of retaliating physically against staff other patients uh and anyone working with him in in Shutter Island in the asylum so even we don't see all of Teddy's violence, but we know that he has continued to be violent for the entire time that he's been on Shutter Island and, and in his past. Now, Myers points out that Teddy um, Teddy's involvement in killing the guards at the concentration camp versus the murder of his wife are 
kind of dichotomous. Um, so when Teddy is in the concentration camp, he, one, has an experience where the like head, the captain of the guard, attempts suicide, shoots himself in the head, and Teddy watches him kind of suffer through this botched attempt. And it, I believe the movie says that it takes that person an hour to die. Um, and Teddy was well within his rights to have ended that suffering. Um, but it's clearly contrasted by the suffering that he saw of the people held prisoner at the concentration camp that influences Teddy's decision to let that guard suffer. Um, it's pretty clear in the film. He looks out the window to see the bodies of the people who have died at the camp and then looks down at the guard and kicks his gun away from him. So in that moment, Teddy is sort of like enacting justice um, to the prison guard. Now, later when they're outside trying to round up the rest of the guards, one of them starts running and everyone in Teddy's unit begins to fire on the line of guards and they end up killing pretty much every single one of them. And so that would be Teddy not engaging in justice, right? He kind of had a reaction to what the crowd was doing and almost like they weren't in control of their actions. They were kind of getting pulled along with this like fervor. Um, and it wasn't about meeting out justice because these guards had surrendered. Now, fast forward to Teddy has come home from the war. He is living with his wife. They have three children and she drowns them in the lake in the backyard of their home. And when Teddy has like laid out the bodies and is you know, kind of processing what has just happened, his wife sits down in front of him and says, set me free. And then kind of slips back into her issues and is talking about like, it's fine that we'll, we'll be fine with the children. We'll give them a bath. Like clearly she's in some sort of episode. Teddy interprets the phrase set me free as her telling him to kill her. And he hangs on to that. And I think that that is a representation of Teddy associating this as, as a just death of well his first defense against it is that she asked me to kill her which I think it's pretty vague it, it couldn't be interpreted as set me free as like leave me like I'm a broken person leave me we, we shouldn't be married to each other anymore it could be interpreted as set me free from life from living by killing me um or set me free by getting me help right maybe if Teddy had called the police she she would be in the asylum rather than than dead and so teddy this like death of the the guard and death of his wife are very similar in that he's like med meeting out this justice like the justice for what the guard did is to suffer the justice for what his wife did is to not to suffer but to die like she has to pay her life in his kind of worldview but the killing of the guards doesn't fit into this narrative of justice and like Teddy being a good person who can decide between good and evil. I think that is part of why and I think Myers talks about this as well in their article but that's why Teddy has such a hard time holding on to his reality that he has done all of these things and he that this is in a sense in which his psyche fractures because he can't hold on to the fact that he has killed multiple people for multiple different reasons and not all of them were justified or just. And when he applied his sense of justice to his wife, it was very difficult. And we they show you in the movie like a flashback of him shooting her and, you know, kind of falling to pieces, realizing what he's done. So that's, I think, 
the that's the past violence that we see for Teddy, right? The past examples of violence. And I'm sure there were more in his past because he was also he was a marshal for several years before he killed his wife and ended up in the asylum. And we also learned from the film that he had a pretty intense drinking problem, which I would imagine extrapolating from what we know about this character that that the drinking may have been a response to trying to drown out the memories of the violence that he's perpetrated and may include memories of violence he perpetrated against people as a marshal, not just from being a soldier. Now, Myers also talks about why there's so much violence in this film and in like Scorsese films in general. And Myers posits that that Scorsese is working through the violence he was surrounded by in his childhood, um, like which was like more specifically mob and gang violence. And that when you watch Scorsese films, you are watching someone essentially processing their experience as a child and experiencing their like um, their worldview and how you make sense of why violence would occur. Particularly in Shutter Island, Scorsese may be working through what is justified violence and what is not and what are the consequences to one's psyche if you believe you're engaging in justified violence or not. There's another character in the film that has a very interesting speech about violence and it is the warden of the asylum. And he doesn't speak much in the film, but he does have a scene where he's picked Teddy up after Teddy has been running around the island and getting further and further into his like conspiracy theory about the asylum. He picks Teddy up and essentially has this very bizarre speech with Teddy where he says like violence is a gift from God and that violence can be like a very powerful and very beautiful thing and that they are both men of violence, the warden and Teddy. And Teddy is like confused by this speech because it is very weird. Um, But if you understand that the warden knows that Teddy is Andrew and has this violent history and that this is the last chance Andrew has to prove that he can recover, then it makes more sense in that context. But when you're watching it for the first time, you're like, what what a little weirdo that this warden is just like, you and me, Teddy, baby, we're violent together. And the warden's speech essentially is saying like, violence can be good if you can control yourself. And the difference between the warden and Teddy is that the warden, while engaging in violence, knows how to control himself and does not go outside the bounds of what would be like normalized or approved by society. Whereas Teddy couldn't do that, especially in the killing of his wife. And I think there, although the warden doesn't say this, there are a lot of implicit messages in that, right? That like, one, violence against women is not going to ever be condoned by society and it wouldn't be condoned by the warden and that violence is only appreciated in men when there are boundaries around it and because Teddy is not able to control himself at the asylum and the warden has seen this his violence cannot be good because it's not contained and it is like it's out of Teddy's control, whereas the warden's violence is very controlled. And like the nature of his job is violence, right? To like incarcerate people and to keep them in line. That is going to entail a certain level of violence in your day-to-day life. But because there is an order to it and a control to it, it is a beneficial or acceptable form of violence. And I just thought that was an interesting kind of little aside, these like different views on violence. And although the film, I think, is more explicitly about like mental health and kind of detailing how mental health is impacted by trauma. Um, This concept of violence is just seen throughout the entire film. Obviously, 
Um, and there are like little hints here and there about what the characters think about violence in general. So Teddy, and I, I, I know his real name is Andrew, but we know him as Teddy throughout most of the movie. So I just like to say that instead. Um, and one of the reasons why I thought this was interesting, this is part of the delusion, which we'll talk about later. But so the main character's name is Andrew Latis, which is uh, an anagram of Edward Daniels, Teddy Daniels. And then his wife, whose name is Dolores Chanel, is an anagram for Rachel Solando, who is the woman that uh, Teddy thinks he's pursuing throughout the film. So both of the names, the kind of split personalities that Teddy is dealing with are anagrams for each other. And Myers points out that Shutter Island is an anagram for truth and lies as well as truth's denials. So a lot of fun wordplay <laughs> in this movie. Um, but again, I'm going to say Teddy because I think it's more fun. In this like understanding of violence and how Teddy kind of separates himself from his own violence because he, he can't quite come to terms with all that he has done. Um, I wanted to talk about this really, really interesting idea of the moral defense. Um, and a lot of what I pulled for this comes from an article called Failures of the Moral Defense in the Film Shutter Island, Inception and Memento, Narcissism or Schizoid Personality Disorder by Clark, published in 2012 in the International Journal of Psychoanalysis. Um, so this was actually looking across three films, Shutter Island, Inception, and Memento, um, but I only am obviously using the part about Shutter Island. I thought it was interesting that Leonardo DiCaprio was in like two out of three of these movies um, that this author was looking at. The moral defense is essentially a theory that comes from Fairbairn in, in the theory of object relations. And the moral defense is like, I got to figure out a way to like protect my own mind from the reality that the world may be bad. So I'm going to break this down kind of quickly. This is how the moral defense is created. So, and this begins in childhood. So let's take a child who maybe lives with neglectful or abusive parents. So the child cannot admit to themselves that the child, the parents are bad, right? That are neglecting or abusing them, but can admit that the child themselves is bad. Thinking to themselves something like, it is my fault that I have been hurt. The child then internalizes the badness of their parents to purify them of their badness and to ensure an, an external sense of security, right? If it's not my parents' fault that they're bad to me, but my own fault, then that means that things around me in the outside of me externally are safe. They're not bad, but they are my fault. The cost of that external security is the sense, the loss of internal security and ego co coherence, which essentially just means now the child believes that they are a bad person and that they like they they can't be safe from themselves right so the external security is i'm i'm safe from my parents and the world because the world is good but because i am bad i'm not safe from myself the child then begins to feel guilty as a defense against separating themselves from the parents so in this case the bad object and that's why it's called object relations <laughs> the bad object is the parents right the parent or it was the parents the parents were horrible to the child, did bad things to them. But the child needs parents, right? We, we need our parents when we're growing up, regardless of how they treat us. There's still this like internal drive to be associated with our parents and be connected with them as, as young children, like very young children. And so because of this understanding the child has internally that they had to separate out the badness from their parents and internalize it, then the child feels a sense of guilt about this idea of like, it's my fault that these things are being done to me. 
right? It's my, and, and there's a guilt of like, how could I ever think that my parents were bad when it is me who was the bad one? And all of this is happening like subconsciously, right? Like a two-year-old is not sitting there and going, I'm so bad. This is why things happen to me. But this is like the unconscious or subconscious process that happens in object relations or within this theory that leads to a child internalizing a certain sense of being and then carrying that with them as they grow up. So essentially it all breaks down to it is better to be conditionally bad in a good world. So that means that I do bad things sometimes, but everyone around me is essentially good than to be unconditionally bad in an evil world, which means I'm always bad. I have not earned the, my badness. I'm always bad. And the world around me is bad as well. So the moral defense allows the child to believe that I'm sometimes bad. On occasion, I do bad things and bad things happen to me because I am bad. If I don't internalize this, then the unconditionally bad would mean things get done to me whether I deserve them or not, right? Unconditionally. <laughs> the conditional part means that like something about me deserves this. So it's better to believe that like I kind of deserve the abuse and neglect that has been handed down to me. But the overall, the world is good. It's me that's drawing this like down on me rather than these things are happening to me because the, the entire world is bad. Everything is bad and there is like just evil around me. That's the moral defense is like defending against this idea that the world is a bad place and bad things done to you don't have an explanation, right? Like child abuse or neglect may not have an explanation. It may just be that like the parents are not good. They're not good to the child. It's not the child's fault. The child can't change anything about how they're treated or change their way that they're behaving in order to be treated differently. It's just what's happening to them because the world is bad. But when the child engages in the moral defense, which is internalizing this badness and separating it from the parents and then building in a sense of guilt to defend against thinking the parents are bad, then the child can still move through the world believing that the world is good and still get their needs met by having their parents around. As we grow up and we still have this moral defense present with us, we're going to uh, react pretty strongly when this idea of are we bad or not becomes challenged. And Teddy, quite literally, in the movie, has split himself into two personalities to separate the badness from himself. Andrew Latus, which is really who Teddy is, Andrew Latus becomes the all bad, the ultimate bad object, the bad personality. Andrew is the one who killed his wife. Andrew is like criminally insane and has murdered other people. Andrew kind of takes on this badness and in the movie the stories told about Andrew Latus are that like he's just chaotic and evil he just does these things and nobody knows why he like can't be stopped and Teddy actually has a few like hallucinatory <laughs> experiences with quote-unquote Andrew Latus before he realizes that it's himself where the character or the actor playing Andrew Latus the delusion portrays him as being like uncharacteristically evil like everything he does is bad he's just like a slimy gross guy he's also physically disfigured which is not cool but in the film is being used to show how evil this person is that even like their body is disfigured even though disfigurement is not inherently bad or good it's just a thing <laughs> that happens Andrew has taken on all of the badness and is completely divorced from Teddy like Teddy has no idea that he's Andrew has like no reckoning that Andrew is part of him and he's completely like divorced himself from Andrew Latus. And then Teddy Daniels is all American boy, you know, war veteran, U.S. Marshal. 
married to his wife, good, you know, good loving husband who is become a victim because Andrew Latus killed his wife. Like he's even divorced himself from what he's done to his wife. And interestingly enough, Teddy in his like in Edward Daniels and that personality does not have children. Like his his mind could not come up for an explanation for what happened to his three children that he doesn't even include the children into either of his identities, right? It's not like Andrew Latus has the three children or killed his three children. There is just, it's, it's just not even present. And I think part of that is because that was a bad thing that Dolores did. And Dolores in uh, Teddy's memory cannot be bad. Like she's only good. And it's not until the end of the movie when we start to see the flashbacks of what really happened that we realize that Dolores was a very sick person. Rachel Solando, who is, again, the anagram for Dolores and is the character that Teddy is searching for, she killed her three children in the lake and then put them around the dinner table, which is what his wife wanted to do with their children. So he's separated out Rachel to be the bad object for Dolores, but they're so separated that, like, Rachel and Dolores are not related to each other at all in the film. Like, there's no understanding that they're the same. At least with Andrew and Teddy, those personalities, Andrew is connected to Teddy in that he blames Andrew for killing his wife. But Rachel and Dolores, there's like absolutely zero connection to them. So he is so applied this moral defense to himself and to his wife that he is totally and completely separated. The fact that they even had children out from himself and his wife and the fact that she was the one who killed them into this like completely unrelated person who doesn't exist. And we later realize that the woman who's playing Rachel Solando is just a nurse in the facility. Now, this idea of a good man versus a bad man or a good object versus good object ultimately is what happens at the end of the film. So the end of the film, Teddy has found out that he's Andrew. He's had the big confrontation with the psychiatrist, admitted that he knows he's Andrew Latest, that he killed his wife and that she killed their children. He's like, he's back in reality with the rest of us. Cut to the final scene, which is Andrew Teddy (laughs) is sitting on the steps at the asylum. He's back in like patient garb, no longer dressed as a marshal, smoking a cigarette. And the psychiatrist who had pretended to be his partner comes to sit next to him. And Andrew begins to speak like he's Teddy and begins to say, like, we got to get off this island. And the psychiatrist is like, what the heck? Like, we just (laughs) we just figured this all out. And Teddy has a quote where he says, which is best to live as a monster or die as a good man and then goes right back into pretending to be Teddy. And there's this like hinting at that he did this intentionally, that it's Andrew. He's integrated. He's knowing that he's at an asylum and he's a patient there, but that he has decided the pain of living with the reality that he killed his wife and probably also the reality that he killed those guards in the war and couldn't save the some of the prisoners that living with that reality would be too painful uh and so living as a monster right living and knowing that he had done these things would be too painful and to die as a good object which i mean he was going to get a lobotomy so he wouldn't die necessarily but his he would die to himself in a way and that his personality would be essentially wiped out but to die as a good man not knowing that he had done any of these things, that that would be preferable. He's he's telling the psychiatrist it'd be preferable to him, for him 
to die as a good man, even though he's asking the psychiatrist, like, what, what, what do you think would be best? Ultimately, Teddy is not able to integrate the bad objects and his moral defense is so strong that he chooses to be lobotomized rather than deal with the reality of the things that he's done in the past and to work through this like guilt against himself. Now, we don't know what happened to Teddy as a child. <laughs> like We don't know about his upbringing, but given Fairbairn's theory and this idea that this happened, this moral defense develops in an abusive or neglective household, we can perhaps extrapolate that Teddy was raised by not supportive parents, <laughs> not good parents, right? That Teddy probably also had traumatic experiences growing up that were compounded by the traumatic experiences he had as an adult and that he, because of those childhood experiences, is holding on to this conditional bad versus unconditionally bad and would rather die than be a unconditionally bad person or totally inherently bad person. Um, so that is just the power of the moral defense. And there's actually a scene where he's interacting with one of the psychiatrists before he realizes before we know that he's Andrew and the psychiatrist is like wow you're very your defense mechanisms are very strong and I think this is like such an example of Teddy's defense mechanisms are so powerful that he is literally defended from reality like he does not know the reality of his his history and what what he's done those I think all tie together in that you know the moral defense arises in the face of the violence that Teddy has perpetrated and been victim of and I think one of the reasons why he also has to stay defended and stay in this Teddy versus Andrew split is that Andrew Latis is violent and does violence against other patients and so Teddy can't integrate those parts of himself because he continues to be violent he's placed all of those violent urges into Andrew Latis and Andrew Latis the personality quote-unquote becomes unregulated and a monster like Teddy says later Andrew Latis embodies all of the violence teddy would you know, never do this violence um, but the reality is is that the similarities between teddy and andrew are many <laughs> because they are the same person and the reality is is that what andrew does is part of what teddy does it's part of himself and he the the goal would be for him to be able to integrate those things but he decides that he doesn't want to do that and that's why he opts for the lobotomy so speaking of lobotomies <laughs> i thought i w could talk about the next theme of treatment of mental health disorders because this film really highlights on quite a few of them um, and I think it also is a good example of unethical treatment so let's let's dive into it so like I said because it's set in the 19 in like 1954 in the 1950s it's a very unique time in psychiatry and I want to be clear that at this point especially in America psychiatrists were the main providers of mental health care and psychiatrists in like the 50, 40s, 50s, sometimes even into the 60s were not just like prescribing medication, but they would do therapy. Like you might in the 50s have had an hour long session with a psychiatrist where they not only prescribe medication, but did like talk therapy with you. And so psychiatrists in the 50s look very different from how we may experience psychiatrists today. But so this, the, the two main psychiatrists, Dr. Naring and Dr. Crawley, Yes, those are the two main ones. <laughs> they represent two sides of a debate about the way to treat the criminal insane. So Dr. N, as I'm going to call him because I can't pronounce his name, Dr. N is a more old school guy who essentially believes that the criminally insane, the quote unquote criminally insane should be 
restrained, sedated, lobotomized, anything you need to do to them to make them be docile. That because they have a criminal history, treatment is out the window and it's all about sedation and making them stop being violent. Whereas Crawley, Dr. Crawley, is more of this idea that we're here to treat people of their insanity, (laughs) regardless of their history, and that if we can treat the insanity, then people will become less violent. We won't need to restrain them. And Crawley has a quote where he says, sanity is not a choice. You can't just choose to get over it. And I think that really highlights his worldview of that, like, the people on the asylum need the help of the psychiatrist and the staff. That they can't just wake up one day and say, I don't want to be like this anymore and change on their own, that they need support. Whereas Dr. N is opposed to that. And I mean, it's not explicitly said, but there is this like implicit understanding that like these people are choosing to be this way. They choose to be bad people or they choose to be violent people. And so as long as they're choosing to do that, then we are going to have to restrain them and keep them under lock and key. That's, that's our job here. So those are the two like main debates. And I have to say, unfortunately, I think that kind of still plays out today of like, maybe not necessarily in psychiatry or psychology, um, because I think we have a more holistic understanding of like mental health treatment now. But I think culturally, especially in the US, there is a pretty large debate about what to do with people who have committed a crime or have been convicted of committing a crime. Like, are they eligible for certain types of treatment? And if they are, like, should they get it? Should they get treatment or should they just be punished? Like, what is rehabilitation? Does it mean that you rehabilitate to the point where you can participate in society? Does it mean that we're actually not rehabilitating you, but we're just putting you in a box for 40 years that we don't have to think about you? Like, what what do we do? And so I think these two psychiatrists kind of represent, Dr. N would be the side of like, put them in a box for 40 years because they did a bad thing. And Crawley would be in the in the camp of like, people need treatment if they have mental health issues. And once those mental health issues have been treated, then we can talk about like the legal consequences. And maybe these people would not have committed their crimes if their mental health was taken care of. So there's three main treatments that are demonstrated in this film. So the first one is lobotomy, or they say multiple times in the film, psychosurgery. And (laughs) lobotomies before the development of psychotropic medications, lobotomies were like, they had a real shining moment, a brief period of time where they were like the gold, well, not necessarily the gold standard of treatment, but they were used quite frequently. Um, And one of the reasons why people liked lobotomies is because it sedated the patients. So this is nasty. (laughs) You don't want to hear about it. Like skip forward if you like, 15 seconds. A lobotomy, a transorbital lobotomy, which is what's used in Shutter Island, is where a essentially an ice pick is put into the eye socket, into behind the skull, into the frontal cortex, and then usually kind of swirled around um, to sever some connections between the frontal cortex and the rest of the brain. Now, if you've been here before, (laughs) or if you're familiar with what the frontal cortex does, it's responsible for executive functioning, helping us to plan out movements, plan out actions, um, and like it's kind of the the human part of the brain, right? If we're talking about the human monkey and lizard brain, it's the human part. So when you cut some of the connections between the human brain and the monkey brain, you're not going to get a very nice person out of that. I mean, not in a, like a mean, mean or nice. I'm just saying like you're not going to get a very like involved person. Like if you severed the connection between the part of the brain that helps people like plan things out in the future or like have creative expression, you're going to lose that when you sever that connection. And so what would happen is 
patients would get the transorbital lobotomy. If they didn't die, they would become essentially like vegetables. I mean, they could move around, they could eat, you know, take care of themselves, but they were flat. Their emotions were flat. Their thinking was flat. We're not, we're not talking about people who are doing a whole lot of like philosophizing after their lobotomy. And they would become very behaviorally calm because you're now living, you're essentially living in brain fog once you've done that. Now, there are reports of people getting a lobotomy and then the opposite happening and becoming like quite agitated and requiring restraint. And part of that was because psychosurgery was (laughs) shot in the dark sometimes. Now, there were other forms of lobotomies that were done um, without going in through the eye socket. Some of them required like a hole to be cut in the skull and to enter into the brain that way. And there were places where the psychosurgery was only done by a surgeon. There were places where it was done by a psychiatrist. There were places where it was done by an orderly. And so that also changes the like variability because you're going to get different results if different people are doing them. And psychiatrists should not be doing surgery, actually. Um, they're not trained to do surgery. So if you're going to do any type of surgery on the brain, it should be by a brain surgeon or a neurosurgeon. And that's how we do it today. Lobotomies were just kind of, they were more common. And the most common treatment actually would be more of like physical restraints. So like asylums pre-1950s, especially in like the 1910s, 1920s, were essentially dungeons where you would put your mentally ill family member and they would like chain them to the wall and just kind of leave them there until they died. Like that, that was treatment was you just kind of got chained, chained up. Um, and lobotomies were seen as like a more humane way of treatment than the chaining. Because the people who had got a lobotomy didn't have to be chained up because they behavior they had improved in their behavior. Now, like I mentioned before, Teddy opts for the lobotomy ultimately at the end of the film, and you know plays. I think he's faking it. I mean, I think you could argue that he did slip back into his delusion, but I think that he's faking it and pretending to be Teddy again, even though he's integrated as Andrew. Um, because he doesn't want to live with his pain and he knows what will come with a lobotomy because he's been at the asylum for two years and has probably seen several people go through it and knows that afterwards you at least get a sense of peace (laughs) because you don't have a whole lot going on in your brain because your brain's been chopped up or scrambled. Now the other method of treatment that is mentioned is like psychotherapy. The main psychiatrist, Dr. Crowley, he's more on this field and believes that if a patient can face the reality of their crimes and can face like the reality of their mental health issues, then they will be cured and that they can get there through talking about it. Um, but Andrew is like such a desperate case that the psychiatrist devises this role play where he lets Andrew be Teddy and kind of run around the island in this Teddy identity or in this Teddy personality. I think this would be considered a form of psychotherapy, even though it's incredibly unethical. Like, it's it's so unethical for many reasons. One, because Teddy could have been gravely injured during the process of this. Like, he could have jumped off of a cliff. He could have... uh, They say that the guns didn't have any bullets in them, but, like, he could have gotten his hands on bullets and shot himself or shot other people. He could have... He almost beats up another patient to death. While he's running around as Teddy, like there's so many things that could have gone wrong to his safety or the safety of people around him. The second is that like Teddy could not consent to this treatment because Teddy doesn't know that he's a patient at the asylum. Like Edward Daniels 
thinks that he's Edward Daniels the Marshal, and Andrew Latus knows that he's Andrew Latus the patient, but Andrew Latus is so divorced from Teddy that Teddy wouldn't be able to consent and say, like, yes, I want to engage in this treatment to help me. He couldn't because he doesn't even know that Andrew, he's not conscious of this splitting that he's done. So it's it's unethical that way. And it's also unethical because, like, so many people got involved in this. Like, literally all of the guards on the island, all of the orderlies, all of the nurses, all of the other patients now know, like, what Andrew's issues are. <laughs> it's like, imagine if everyone at the treatment center you were at knew what your mental health issues were and, like, the things that you talked about and knew, like, what you had done to your wife. And, like, obviously this is not a general experience, but it's to get all these people involved in this treatment in this way, I think is incredibly unethical and just like demonstrates that this was a last ditch effort that they were doing it. One, because they were desperate to get Andrew to change, but also because at the end of the film, we see that Dr. Colley wants to like be responsible for inventing a new therapy, like a innovative treatment. He basically tells Teddy, like all of this rides on you. If like, if we want to be able to do this innovative quote unquote innovative treatment, then you need to like get yourself together <laughs> so that we can prove that this works. And like so that's not how treatment works. It's not how research on treatment works. It's just it reeks of desperation and it's just it's really unethical. So like if anyone w- watched this movie and was like, "Wow, what an interesting way to like treat someone." No, it's incredibly dangerous. And I think this is more similar to like the Stanford Prison Experiment than it is to like treatment. Um but we can talk about the Stanford Prison Experiment in a different episode. Okay, so that's kind of like the therapy one. And then the last one is psychotropic medication. So Teddy, he's actually withdrawing from Thorazine during the movie. So they, throughout the movie, they give him like aspirin. They give him cigarettes from the asylum. Like he's not allowed to have his own. They they give him asylum cigarettes. And the the, essentially the assumption is that there's psychotropic medications in the aspirin that they're giving him, which is not aspirin, it's just Thorazine. (laughs) And it's been slipped into like the food and the cigarette. That way, they can keep Teddy somewhat medicated because he would be too violent if he was unmedicated without him being aware of the fact that he's being medicated. However, about two-thirds of the way through the film, he has an encounter with a woman who like lives in the caves and apparently was a psychiatrist who discovered that they were doing shady stuff. And she kind of, she's not real. She's a, a hallucination for Teddy, but it serves to show the audience of like, Teddy is suspicious of what's going on here and knows is starting to realize that he's being dosed now he believes that the symptoms he's having are because he's being dosed with thorazine but the reality is is that he's withdrawing from thorazine so by the end of the film he has like a tremor he has headaches and it's the withdrawal symptoms of him not getting his his regular dosage of thorazine now before the 1950s we didn't have psychotropic medications we mostly had barbiturates and hypnotics so if you were in an asylum um, and they needed to sedate you, they would give you barbiturates. They would give you downers and just kind of knock you out. The first psychiatric medication was Thorazine, which I've mentioned before, which is used to treat symptoms associated with psychotic disorders, uh, particularly in patients who were deemed agitated. So it had a sedating effect, but also seemed to not just knock someone out, but to help them um, manage their symptoms better. It wasn't just a sedative. Thorazine was actually discovered through the process of attempting to create a more powerful antihistamine. So a lot of our psych meds actually come from like the development of antihistamines that then we realized like could help people with mental health issues. So 1950 Thorazine comes out. 
1950, the first anti-anxiety medication came out. And in 1951, the first antidepressant also came out. So we start to have not just medication for psychotic disorders, but for multiple types of mental health disorders. So if Teddy is at an asylum in 1954, then all of these medications are present. Um, but it's said that he's on Thorazine. It's the Thorazine is the brand name of it. It's called like Chlormazepine or whatever. That's the like generic. That's the drug name. But Thorazine is the branded name. But I like Thorazine better because it's easier to say. <laughs> and so after psychotropic medications became like widespread, people didn't need to do lobotomies anymore. Like you didn't need to restrain people or do like electroshock because or just give them barbiturates because you could give them something like Thorazine or an anti-anxiety medication and the patient could begin to live like a quote unquote normal life. Early psych meds were like pretty intense. Um, and you might argue that it's still sedating to give someone Thorazine, but we're going to digress on that. So it's interesting that in Shutter Island, which takes place four years after Thorazine hit the markets and like clearly was being used because Teddy was given it, the asylum is still doing lobotomies and shows that tells us that lobotomies are like this last ditch effort for people who the medication doesn't work on. It seems that although this isn't said that Teddy's like tolerance to Thorazine may have been too high and so it wasn't working for him anymore or it never really worked for him. It might have sedated him a little bit but not enough Uh, and so that's why lobotomy was on the table. I don't think it would have been on the table if when Teddy takes his Thorazine He's a good boy and knows that he's Andrew, but when he's not taking his Thorazine, you know, he's not, he's back to being Teddy. If that was the case, I don't think the lobotomy would be on the table. They would just be like, we're going to put the Thorazine in your cigarettes like we did before. We're going to give you a, you know, scrambled eggs and Thorazine every morning. So it's clear that something was not working for Teddy. I think the film is trying to tell us that like Teddy was so severe that the medication didn't work for him. Um, and like maybe in the 1950s that was true, but we have more options now. And we also know that the combination of medication and psychotherapy is like quite powerful. So there probably could be hope for someone like Teddy nowadays who maybe didn't respond fully to the medication, but could have responded to a combination of, of different types of treatment. Ultimately, Teddy was getting this medication, did participate in psychotherapy, and then we assume gets a lobotomy at the end of the film. And so we see how like the these schools of treatment are kind of battling each other. And lobotomy wins out. In Shutter Island, lobotomies went out, which is, I think, part of why it's a horror movie. <laughs> is that like it's horrifying to think of this like procedure being done to someone because that they're they're dealing with so much trauma uh, and so many mental health symptoms. So this is my transition into my next theme, which is about the relationship between trauma and delusions or hallucinations in this film. So I think that we, as the public, but also like we as in mental health professionals, sometimes have a tendency to think that if a patient is presenting with delusions or hallucinations, that it has to be schizophrenia, that they have to have schizophrenia or a psychotic thought disorder. The reality is, is that that's not true. And you can have hallucinations with a variety of disorders and particularly with mood disorders for people with fairly severe depression or bipolar disorder hallucinations will be present and there's actually a growing body of literature to show that hallucinations can be present in trauma disorders so PTSD things like PTSD and i would argue that in the presentation we get with Teddy that his delusion and hallucinations are very related to trauma and 
did not start to bother him until he went through very traumatic experiences. And I would argue that one of the pieces of evidence for Teddy not having schizophrenia is the timing which when his symptoms onset. So Teddy doesn't begin to have these hallucinations of his wife until after she dies uh, or the hallucinations of his children until after she dies. And he doesn't begin to have this like delusion that he's he's Teddy. He doesn't have the split between the personalities until the death of the murder of his wife. If he had schizophrenia and given his age, we can guess that at the point in the movie, Teddy's probably in his 30s because if he had been in the war and then he by the time he had three children, it seems like his oldest was probably about between eight and 10 years old. So he was probably in his early to mid 30s at the time of the movie. Mostly the onset of schizophrenia symptoms occur in young adulthood, so like young 20s. It can be onset later into life, um, but one of the things we're looking for when we're diagnosing schizophrenia is that onset. And again, I'm not diagnosing Teddy with anything because he's not my patient and he's not real, but I'm just saying because this movie is about someone being a patient in an asylum and the language that the psychiatrist used to talk about him kind of hint at him being somebody with schizophrenia, I think it's important to point out that if I were to be working with this patient, um, these would be things that I would be looking for. And Teddy's onset of symptoms would be pointing me away from a psychotic disorder. I would be considering a different type of, of disorder for, for Teddy. We know what his delusion is, right? His delusion is that he's Teddy and Latus is a different man who is to blame for his wife's death, that his wife did not kill their children because he doesn't believe that he has children and that he and that his delusion is that he's still a marshal. He's still Teddy the marshal. And in fact, as he's at the asylum on Shutter Island in this like elaborate role play that they're doing for treatment, he starts to develop other, not delusions, but he he, he starts to display a lot of conspiratorial thinking, which we love on the show <laughs> to talk about. Um, and, and Teddy's paranoia is very, very present in the film. And he actually starts to have this kind of vague theory that because there's a German doctor at the asylum and because that there seem to be patients going missing, even though there aren't, and he's the missing patient, that there's something sketchy going on in this place. And he's also incorporating information he learned from other patients who also have mental health issues, that there's some sort of elaborate hoax to use this asylum to test things, like test medication on patients, and that it's just like what the Nazis did with human experimentation. Now, I think there is a very good explanation for why Teddy starts to have this particular type of conspiratorial thinking. Because of his experience in World War II and of being at a concentration camp that was where he was liberating survivors of the Holocaust, he's going to be more, I guess, amenable (laughs) to conspiracy theories that are related to things that the Nazis did, like doing experiments on human beings. There's also a German psychiatrist. Dr. N is a German psychiatrist, which is a big, big activator for Teddy. And we see him having active flashbacks of what happened at the concentration camp while he's um, still pretty deep in his delusion that he's he's Teddy. He's having hallucinations of his wife, but not of the like reality of what happened to his wife. But he is having hallucinations of or not hallucinations. He's having flashbacks of what happened at the camp when he was there as a soldier. I think it's interesting that 
Teddy starts to slip into this like paranoia, this conspiratorial thinking as he gets farther away from his last dose of his medication of his Thorazine. So the more that Teddy is off of his medication, the more susceptible to conspiratorial thinking that he is and the more his paranoia is setting in, which someone could say, you know, well, that's why they call it paranoid schizophrenia. And, you know, he's got the presentation of that. We don't call it paranoid schizophrenia anymore. <laughs> so that's that's one, you know, knock against that. Um, but also paranoia is, I think in this case, is not necessarily a presentation of paranoia for Teddy, but could be a presentation of what we would call hypervigilance, which is a symptom of PTSD where the person feels very alert and aware of their environment and may be more vigilant, hypervigilant to perceive threats. So Teddy is seeing threats in this environment that he's in everywhere he goes, you know, I think flavored by his delusions because he's believing that it's like this elaborate hoax that and they're doing experimentation. But at the end of the day, I think you could see this as like a type of hypervigilance. Now, what I think another thing that makes this treatment um, unethical is that the characters, the psychiatrist really pushed Teddy's paranoia to drive this experiment. There's a scene where Teddy and Mark Ruffalo's character are in, they're like in the graveyard. No, they're in the graveyard during a storm, so they have to take shelter in like a crypt or something. And Teddy and Mark Ruffalo's character, Dr. Sheehan, are talking. And Teddy starts to say like, you know, something suspicious is going on here, Chuck. Like, you know, these pieces aren't adding up. And Mark Ruffalo's character leans into it and is like, you know, they've got this and they they won't let us see these patient files and blah, blah. And he's like pushing into this belief to keep driving Teddy to seek the truth. And so this is an area that I also would think would be is incredibly unethical and would never be allowed nowadays. You, we don't, when we're working with someone who maybe is experiencing a delusion or is experiencing paranoia like this, we don't want to, we want to walk a very fine line of not directly challenging the belief because it is the person is experiencing it as real, whether there's evidence for it or not. They're they're experiencing it as real, but we also don't want to give them evidence for it, right? I'm not going to sit in front of a patient that has a delusion and be like, I think you're onto something here, because that just reinforces the belief that we're trying to help them process and work through, and that is causing them distress because delusions are very frequently experienced as highly distressing experiences, right? Teddy's not having a good time because of these thoughts he's having about the possibility that there's like a programmed experiment on communists. <laughs> like he, he's distressed by this. So I don't like that aspect of it. And I also think that there is a, a heightened possibility that Teddy gets into a situation that's very dangerous because of the way that they're pushing into his paranoia. Because ultimately the success of the treatment depends on Teddy making it to the lighthouse to, for the final confrontation with the psychiatrist. And to get to the lighthouse, he has to jump into the sea. Now imagine if he, in his like paranoia and frenzy, just like leapt off of a cliff to get out to the lighthouse. He could have hurt himself or even killed himself. So it's like, it's not safe and it's, it's not ethical because it's not an appropriate way to treat someone who's experiencing delusions. Now, we could say that it's like it was the 1950s and it's a fake movie. So why are you so worked up about it? You know, again, like the purpose of this podcast is to demonstrate how psychology can be applied to pop culture, but also how it's represented in pop culture and the way that psychology is represented or even things like psychiatry or mental health in general have consequences for us, right? And impact the way that we might interact with mental health in, in general. One of the most clear examples of how trauma impacts hallucinations and delusions is 
the appearances of Dolores to Teddy. So the first time that we see Teddy having a vision of Dolores is she, um, because he still is, he's Teddy at the time, believing the falsehood that Dolores died in an apartment fire. Um, She appears to him in their apartment and she's like ashy, like she's like cinders, like she's been burned. And so that's a representation that he's still fully in this story. He's telling himself that she died in this fire. We later learned that in real life, Dolores actually did set fire to their apartment in an attempt to kill herself. And that is why they moved out to like the middle of nowhere to this near this lake was to like get her out of, of a situation that led to her being suicidal. There is an element of reality to these visions he's having, right? Like there was an attempted fire and she could have died in that fire. But when he's first seeing her, he's not seeing her for who she really was and how she <laughs> left the, the, their life, right? How she was at the end. As she continues to appear to Teddy throughout the film, she becomes wet. So she will appear like kind of bedraggled. Her hair is wet. And Teddy doesn't seem to notice it in his hallucinations of her until we get his final flashback where we see the whole thing. And he, one of the things he asks her is, why are you wet? Because he's trying to figure out what happened to the kids and realizes what she did. And so I think that Dolores appearing to him and the flash, and he also is having flashbacks at the same time. So he's having flashbacks of the war, but then having these hallucinations of Dolores and his old, his daughter, which he at the time when he's still Teddy doesn't know who she is. He thinks she's um one of the victims from the concentration camp because he doesn't have space in the Teddy personality for his daughter, the memory of his daughter. But so I think what these represent is the very thin line between memory and hallucination. And I found several studies um that, like I said, this is a emerging area of interest in the field. But several stor- studies have started to build on this relationship between traumatic experiences and quote-unquote psychotic-like experiences. There appears to be some sort of relationship between depersonalization and memory fragmentation to tie hallucinations and trauma. So depersonalization is a form of disassociation where you essentially no longer feel connected to yourself, um, most often described as a feeling of like floating outside of your body. But I think that Teddy and Andrew represent a pretty intense depersonalization. He's literally depersonalized himself away from himself. He's uh, no longer Andrew. He's only Teddy. And so he's having the depersonalization. And then memory fragmentation often happens when people are exposed to trauma. We don't encode traumatic memories linearly. We encode them as like chunks. So you may be like remembering a traumatic experience and you remember the end first, or you remember the middle, or you don't remember all of it. There are parts that are missing. And Teddy, as we see him piece together his memories, he doesn't have a linear memory of what happened to him. He has fragments of World War II mixed in with fragments of what happened with Dolores mixed in with, you know, essentially like memories he's created. And it's clear that Teddy's hallucinations are directly related to the trauma he's been through. Having to kill his wife after she killed their children is is pretty traumatic, right? And on top of what he went through as a soldier. And I would say that essentially the memory of Dolores appearing to him is part of these traumatic intrusion symptoms where the trauma comes back to you even when you're not trying to. It's intrusive, right? You're not not trying to remember what happened. Teddy's actively not trying to remember what happened to him, um, but he can't keep his mind from bringing this back. And so Dolores appearing to him is this like memory of what he's done and she's actively trying to keep him from getting better 
So Dolores tells him to stay away from the lighthouse and to go kill Andrelatus. She's upholding the depersonalization. She's upholding the delusion. She's upholding the cycle of violence. Because if Teddy makes it to the lighthouse, he gets to confront the psychiatrist and he gets to learn the truth. So she's the part of his mind that is aware of Andrelatus and the depersonalization that's occurring. And she's representing this part of Teddy's mind that's keeping him away from it. Now, I think it's important to realize that it's a part of Teddy's mind. It's not Dolores as a character. Like Dolores, the person, is not trying to keep him sick. But this part of his mind that's defending against what's happening, trying to keep him from getting better. Now, I think you can argue that Dolores probably was not a well woman, given that she did kill her children and may have asked him to kill her and did attempt to kill herself. She was not doing well. The psychiatrist says that she was bipolar. He says she was manic depressive, but that would be she had bipolar disorder. They also say that she's like insane and a mean person, but we don't know. Whatever was happening with Dolores, though, was she was she needed help. And so I think that that like whatever was going on with Dolores, whatever illness she had or or difficulty she was having, Teddy feels a sense of guilt over that he should have stopped her or should have been able to help her to get better. And that part of this like guilt that he has and part of why she still has a hold over him through through his mind is because he feels responsible for the death of their children because he knew something was wrong with her i mean she attempted suicide by trying to build burn down their apartment building like he knew something was not right um but instead of getting her help he just fled he or i mean he fled with her but he fled and then when she hurt their children because she was still you know unmedicated and around them um he had to once again like step up to the plate take it into his own hands and and take her life um so i think that like dolores will always be with him and and this also could be one of the reasons why he wants the lobotomy is that she might go away this like part of his brain that's holding on to her memory and having her intrude into his life and remembering the the bad stuff that she's done and that he's done because in his relationship with her that he'd rather have that wiped out than having to deal with that because the reality of him still having to deal with these intrusive symptoms and these hallucinations are pretty pretty high even as he works through them and has an understanding of who Andrew and Teddy are and they're the same person. So that's about it. I do think one of the things I do want us to take away from this episode is understanding that psychotic-like symptoms like hallucinations or delusions are not 100% relegated to the domain of schizophrenia. Um, so that if you are experiencing those types of symptoms, there can be other explanations for them. I mean, either way, you uh, please get help if you're experiencing hallucinations or delusions, but there are other possibilities for why they may be happening. And so it behooves you to like engage in treatment and you know get the support that you may need for whatever is going on. Um, but there are reasons why our brains react like this. And sometimes it's our brain's best way of trying to protect us from a really harsh reality. Um, but the reality, the reality is that the hallucinations will, will not serve us in the long term um, and that we can help our brain out by getting support for taking down those defenses and dealing with, with the stuff behind them um, and, you know, taking our medication and not getting a lobotomy because that's not an option anymore. <laughs> uh, I hope that this episode was really interesting. I really like this movie. I think it's a, a good one to watch at least twice so that you can watch it again knowing that the twist is coming. Um, and it also has a lot to show us about how the world of psychiatry has probably changed in the last few years. Um, so with that, I'm going to end it here. I appreciate you listening all the way through and I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode. Thank you.